I think first impressions really matter in this industry. And I just, uh, I saw a lot of people confused or not putting their best foot forward. Run from anyone who tells you that the value of the business is related to their personal needs. When you try to do this yourself and you start telling everyone else that everyone else is interested, and then a couple of those things fall out, like that momentum really tarnishes your deal. I'll tell you the advice I got from everyone, which is- yeah. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Whether you're looking to sell your business in the near future or just want to make it more scalable and profitable, Work Better Now's virtual assistants can help you get there. Adding a virtual assistant to your team can help you focus on high-value activities like business development and training. Work Better Now clients also use their assistants as project managers, marketing and operations coordinators, and customer service representatives. Work Better Now clients say that their virtual executive assistants have made an impact on their business well beyond their expectations. For only $1,900 a month, you get a full-time assistant who is 100% dedicated to your business. There are no contracts, no additional cost. Based in Latin America with incredible English proficiency and business experience, Work Better Now assistants undergo a rigorous screening and onboarding process. Work Better Now is currently offering Built to Sell listeners and readers $150 off per month for three months just by mentioning Built to Sell. To learn more, visit workbetternow.com. Well, welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio. My name is John Orlo. I'm your host. This is the podcast that helps you punch above your weight when it comes to selling your company. And today is part two of a two-part episode with Robert Glazier. Robert started and sold Acceleration Partners, started from scratch, built it to $28 million in revenue before he sold it to Mountain Gate Capital. When I say sold it, he carried a significant amount of equity into the Mountain Gate deal, and now acts as a acquirer for companies. And so we thought it might be fun to sort of turn the tables on Robert and have him discuss what he looks for in the companies he acquires. What are the deal turnoffs? What are some of the things that um, excite him about a deal? What are the three things he looks for in a deal? And this was all sort of inspired by a blog post he wrote providing some benchmarks around the likely outcomes of service-based companies. He bucketed service-based companies into three buckets. So you can get that at builttosell.com. And I think it's a really helpful framework to think through. So just go to the show notes on this episode, part two of the Robert Glazier series. Go to builttosell.com and you'll find it. I also want to make a shout out to John Clayton. John Clayton was episode 316 and he was also acquired, same industry, uh, by Mountain Gate Capital slash Acceleration Partners. As John Clayton describes, uh, the deal came together right about the same time Robert Glazier sold to Mountain Gate. So it's a, it's a really interesting juxtaposition to listen to both Robert's story and then followed up by John Clayton's story. John Clayton was episode 316. So you may want to check that out. Uh, just Google Built to Sell Radio and John Clayton and that'll pop right up. Uh, but here to tell you his perspective from an acquirer's point of view on what he looks for in a deal is Robert Glazier. Robert Glazier, welcome back to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks, John. Good to be here. I've turned my hat around. 
from seller to buyer. Exactly. (laughs) So listen, for those who have not heard your episode last week, uh, I interviewed Robert last week in regards to his sale of acceleration partners to mountain gate capital and i use the word sale in in air quotes because actually it was a majority recapitalization meaning mountain gate bought the majority of his company but he's still very much in the company running the business as a platform and now they are in the process of acquiring other companies in the same industry they're in the broadly speaking partner marketing affiliate marketing space and it was a great interview. So again, if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, Robert started from scratch. His business in over 14 years grew it to $28 million and almost 200 employees and had a fantastic uh, exit event. So uh, welcome back, Robert. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah. And this is the first I've ever done. So if this really tanks, I'm going to blame you All for right. sure. You blame me because it was my, it was my idea. That's fine. It's and, if it, and it's great. It'll be like the Glazer effect. It was like so amazing. In any event, <laughs> they, when I say the first time we've ever done this, we're going to reverse the hat and, and, and talk to an acquirer of businesses. So for today, I'd like you to wear your acquirer hat. And now you're talking to dozens, if not hundreds of entrepreneurs about their business, but potential of acquiring them. And I want you to wear the hat of business buyer, what you look for, um, what's a deal turnoff, what, you know, what personality traits you yep. like, despise, <laughs> et cetera. So that's the hat I, I've asked Robert to play. So as we go through this, um, that's the, uh, the lens through which we are going to attack this question. And I think it was prompted by a blog post. In fact, I know it was prompted by a blog post that you wrote providing some benchmarks for uh, people in the marketing services space to think about their company. And so again, I'm going to do my best to to try to bridge the gap because we've got listeners from different businesses. Uh, yeah, and, and, and those metrics probably apply generally to professional services, you know, not just marketing yeah. services. Yeah. Good. Okay. That's 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 great. So as we as we walk through some of these benchmarks, I'd, I'd just encourage you to to not get too myopically focused on the multiples uh, that Robert references. Um, if you're in marketing services, they're probably pretty close to what you'll see in the market. But in and and by extension, professional services. And if you're you know in a, in a different kind of business, if you own a car dealership or you own a dental practice or you have a uh, a tech company, is it's likely to be different. So I think what's interesting here is is not only the benchmarks but also the thinking that went into them and the way that Robert looks at a potential acquisition. So maybe we'll just start start there. What prompted you to write this blog post? Yeah, a, a lot of frustrating conversations. <laughs> um, and I, I actually found this in my business over the years too, where if I was seeing something over and over again, um, it actually was better to point to an article that already existed <laughs> rather than to sound like I was saying it you know, to just that person. Like people used to say, hey, how come you guys can't work on a performance only basis? Like, let me point you to this article about why that doesn't work that I wrote two years ago, right? So it's not not versus telling a story. So you know, as we started, you know, we're, we're a platform company, you know, we're hoping to do three or four or maybe more acquisitions over our, you know, four to five year period. And, and so, you know, as someone who had been on that side and I now got out in the market and, and talking to companies and particularly smaller ones. And, um, I, I just realized like there was, uh, 
I think you asked me what one of my regrets was last time. That was just not knowing the metric of the industry. And, and, and that was, a, there was just some confusion around why these businesses are bought, how people pay for them, where, where the value is. Um, and, you know, like anything, like supply and demand are, are pretty powerful. They're market clearing prices. And when there's been 20 markets- What does that clearing, mean market clearing price? Wasn't pr pr Price at which deals get done, right? And if you look across the industry, you will find a, cl uh, a cluster of dots, right? And then, and then this, is, this is also, this is services, right? This isn't tech or something where someone might just come in and just dramatically overbid because, <laughs> because they need to have it. I mean, services are, are really driven by EBITDA uh, and, and sort of size uh, and scale. Um, and I just, I think people, what I said, sometimes they confuse interest with value. There are a lot of people interested and, and sometimes that is true, the interest in value, but there are a lot of people interested. But then when you present your information and it is not in a form that is sort of market ready or detached from law market stuff, I think it, I think first impressions really matter in this industry. And I just, I saw a lot of people confused or not putting their best foot forward or, or just totally off in terms of what the, uh, someone would pay for their business. When, when you make, when you meet with a founder entrepreneur, how do you try to, uh, ferret out their valuation expectations? Do you just ask them right up front? Like, what do you want for the company? Or how do you sort of get a get out of, get that? Well, I, I, as you know, like this is a two part problem, I would say, because enterprise value is, is usually trailing 12 months EBITDA, you know, times the multiple. So there, there, there's two weight variants. It, is, is the trailing 12 months EBITDA accurate? <laughs> because there's net income and then there's sort of adjusted EBITDA, right? And we can, we can talk, the difference between talk the through two. that. Yeah. So net income is, is just what the profit statement says, you know, at, at, at the end of the year. So let's say it says a million dollars. Um, and then there's, uh, but there are what the buyer is looking for abnormal things that they could either, you know, ha they, they have to add in or they could take out. So let's say there's, let's just say there's a hundred thousand dollars in net income, but the owner has been running all their vacations for the last couple of years through the business for $50,000 or last year, $50,000. Well, you'd say, well, I'm not paying for vacations when this is done. So it's really $150,000. Well, then it turns out they're only paying themselves $50,000, but they're the head of marketing sales and otherwise. And if you had to put a, if you were buying the company for its profit stream and you had to put a person in there to replace them, and maybe that's a hundred thousand dollar roll. So now we're back down to a hundred, right? We, we, we marked it up to 150 and then we said, oh, well, you're only paying yourself 50, but that's a hundred K roll. Um, so, you know, a company that has a banker, you know, this is usually what the banker does with them first. They go through all the numbers, they make these adjustments and they, they, they take it to market at a clean number. Often a business that you call or find or that's not at market, um, they are throwing out a number that may not be clean at all. And, and, and you know, the, the, the extreme example is where you have multi-partner businesses where they're paying them all, all their money as profit. <laughs> so, you know, they say, hey, well, what's your profit level? And they say, well, I'm 500,000. But then you find out there's three partners who were taking zero salary. Well, actually, and there are 120 each. Well, actually, that's a hundred thousand dollar EBITDA business I, I mean that's a that's a big change and even the discussion before you even talk about the multiple like that's a so so to me there's sort of what's the number the other shocking thing i would find looking at mostly services business is the amount of services business that 
didn't put their people against a gross margin. Like they're not, not, I'm not, you know, there's a gap, but this is just basic good accounting where if people are providing a service, it's our gross margins are 80%. And then, and then you say, I mean, and you look in there and you're saying, wait, wait, you don't count any of your people who are delivering services as gross margin. So there's some baseline numbers. And then, and then there's- Wouldn't the the gap way to look at people be- if if they are salaried employees, they're below the line. They're they're not part of gross margin. Isn't that the way? In most- a professional service business, if they are delivering the product or service, then that is a cost of goods sold. You consider that a cost of goods sold, even if their compensation is fully salary. It's not variable. It's not hourly. It's not you would you would you yeah. Would the variable comp is actually usually more in the sales department or the stuff that is below the yeah. line. But like if you're That's an accounting a- firm. The accountant is 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 a cost of goods sold because you are delivering accounting services. You can't say our gross margin ninety percent, and then we have all these operating people. Is that is that your opinion or the way you think about it, acceleration partners, or is that is I that think that's a accepted best practice in the in the industry. I I don't know whether it's technically gap, but is because gap doesn't affect taxes you know i mean it's revenue recognition yeah, yeah but that is a generally agreed upon on how if you were to look up white papers on stuff on how do you you know look at like because most services businesses you know i mean they tend to be good as like 50 or 60 percent margin you know not you know not 90 percent margin i mean you tend to find it uh, in that way but you, the definition of a cost of goods sold is anything supporting the delivery of of the actual service so really it should be the people working on the the accounts it should be their computers and even even their in the in their benefits so again you get you get some numbers that are, are are distorted and then you get into to multiple and you know we talked about this before in the last where you know our industry it ranges maybe from five to to ten um, but there's times a big EBITDA times EBITDA but you know your friend had a five million dollar EBITDA company and got a ten times the multiple um, and you have a million dollar company. And you all, you just heard that your friend got a 10 times EBITDA. So the, you know, these numbers, they're, they're very much a function of, of scale, which is a function of risk. Um, and so and- a lot of people listening to this is saying, but, but why? Like, what, like I, 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 you know, I run a million dollar company yeah. and it's a great business. We've got like good housekeeping, seal of approval time type clients. Yeah. Um, why would my multiple be any different than a $10 million business? I mean, it's the same business, the same industry, the That's same profitability. Like, yeah. Why is it, why do you get such a premium just for size? I don't get that. That's what some people are listening to say. Yeah, because the problem with services businesses is you're either, you're either buying a founder or you're buying a business. <laughs> and when you find, let's just say that 20% is a, you know, a healthy margin. So that means a million dollar EBITDA business, probably a $5 million business. In a lot of those businesses, if you go down the line, you know, the founder is the chief salesperson. They are key overseeing um, delivery. They, you know, they are very involved in finance and operations. And so when you think about the, the, the risk of that and what you are buying from sort of a cash generate, it is very founder dependent, just the, the EBITDA also just tends to correlate with size and level of sophistication. So a, a $5 million EBITDA business, then, you know, maybe a 20 or $25 million revenue business. Well, at this point, there is a head of sales and a sales team. There is a marketing leader. There is a finance leader. Like you are, you are buying a, either as a CRM system, there's, you know, some gap accounting, you, the, the, the risk of both the scale and the risk of that revenue 
is is so much less. In a lot of those one million or half million dollar sub EBITDA businesses, the founder get hits by a bus. There's no business. Um, you know, that's I think that's the key. That's the key takeaway. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I want to go back to the question I asked earlier because we, it got us into a rabbit hole around gap. Yeah. I apologize for that. You know, when you're meeting with an entrepreneur, your time is valuable, yeah. and 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 you've got to pretty quickly ascertain whether yeah this guy is is so far out of the realm of reality. So I, I do ask, I do ask them. Yeah, I will ask them. What, what, what do you say? What do you ask? Yeah, I might say like, what what is your understanding of 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 market? You know, for the business or what what are you know what's the EBITDA and what are you thinking would be a you know multiple that that you would be looking for and 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 that just tells you whether you're even in the ballpark or not. And and, and a lot of times what you'll find is an answer start talking about well our our, our brand and our this. And our revenue and, and and again these are services businesses are the good news and the bad news and i found this out the hard way as i said in the last episode they are valued on ebitda like the and 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 so it is it, it is generally good to understand what the value metric is for your business in your industry um because because that you know if it's private equity or otherwise they're they're buying the earning stream they're using debt in a lot of cases and that 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 income is a key leverage against the debt as well Right. So just, just to explain that, what you're saying is that that EBITDA goes to enable them to expand their debt facility, which they need to buy businesses because part yeah. of their model is using leverage. Leverage. Yeah. And, and debt, you know, there's coverage ratios, like the banks will let you borrow and the banks are the ones who look at not, what did you do the last three months? They're very big on trailing 12 months, right? Because a lot of businesses grow dramatically and they say, this is our run rate. That is not how banks lend. Banks lend on previous 12 months. And you know, you could go from conservative to one or two times leverage for debt to, you know, maybe up to four or five times if you're really, if you're really stretching it. What so explain explain what you mean by that? Yeah. So so you know, um uh, I, I think a conservative approach, like on a five million dollar EBITDA business, if you're gonna take two times leverage, you'd be ten million dollars in debt, you know, you'd have probably no problem getting from a bank on that because th that remember that debt's also uh is, is is sits above all that equity so they, they see all that equity in there and they say well, we're pretty sure the investors don't want to lose all that equity <laughs> so you know they're going to make sure that, that that this loan is repaid you know a, a business you know doing like using five times leverage would be like a five million dollar EBITDA business borrowing 25 million dollars um and let's just say that business was worth 10 million so that'd be a 50 percent you know, doing on debt, which obviously is great if it's doubling, if, if you run into some hiccups, like that can, uh, just like buying a house, like, you know, you either really juice your return or, or, you know, wipe out your equity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so how much equity do you guys, how much leverage do you guys use at Acceleration? Um, we're pretty conservative. So I, I, you know, we did like two to three at the outset, hope, you know, knowing with our growth rate that that comes down pretty quickly. Um, you know, within the first year of, of a deal. Got it. And what advice would you give to entrepreneurs who want to understand the leverage the private equity group is planning to use to buy their business? Yeah, I mean, they should they should ask that, particularly if they're going to be part of it, um, because again, that can impact their their equity and understand. They got to understand it's it's just like putting down a five percent down payment on a house, right? When the, if the market goes up. 5%, you've doubled your money. If it goes down 5%, you've lost all of it. So it, 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 it really, 
it can work for you or against you. And so it really depends on that gets into the whole deal terms and, and, and what the value of the deal is. Yeah. So when you talk to an entrepreneur, you say, like, what, what's your understanding of market in our space? Um, what's, what's a response to that, that, that is reasonable that you're like, okay, we can keep talking. And then what would you say is like a deal breaker? If they say this, I am done. I'm out. I took a buying a business class, like, like 20 years ago, I think when I was 22, when I wanted to buy a business. And one of the things I'll never forget of the woman that, that Marsha Rossman taught this class. And, and, and I learned this when I was trying to do it then I didn't buy a business was run from anyone who tells you that the value of the business is related to their personal needs or things that have nothing to do with the business. Like, right. well, I I'm need a million dollars to retire or I need this or I need to retire. And I heard that from people literally like, well, my wife's yeah. leaving me and this and that and otherwise. And while I don't think people say that they just, the more that they get away from the actual economic engine of the business, the less I am interested in having that conversation. You know, when they start talking about, well, we've built a great brand and we have great people and people love us and all this stuff. And then you look and they're not making any money. Right. And, and I, look, I talked to, I mean, we could talk about this for hours. I, I mean, I kept a notepad of, you know, I talked to probably 30 businesses last year and, and all of the ones I marked as these guys are not going to sell. When I checked in at the end of the year, they hadn't sold because they were kind of running fake processes they were, you know, their numbers weren't clean. They were all over the place. Um, they were trying to do it themselves. And, and, you know, we talked about a process like on the other thing, momentum's really important in these deals, right? And, and you get one chance to do this right. And so this is why a banker who runs a process, who gives people timelines, who synchronizes the process, when you try to do this yourself and you start telling everyone else that everyone else is interested, and then a couple of those things fall out, like that momentum really tarnishes your deal really quickly. So we had a couple that were like, oh, we've got people tons of interested. You got to hurry. And I really looked at the numbers and we looked at the thing. And we we're like, nah, it's not that interesting. And, you know, you just check in three months later and, oh yeah, we decided to put it on the, take it off. And, and, and I had, we had one person that, that told us, um, you know, you know, send me, uh, you know, can we get an LOI? And, and, and I'm paraphrasing this, but, it, 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 he was, again, this banker was trying to work with him. He was trying to do it himself. So, so the banker was on the thing and he was basically like, can you send us an LOI? We want to know where you are, but I'm not actually sure if we're going to sell this year. And we're like, we don't just send LOIs for fun. Like, right. I, I mean, this is, yeah, I'm like, you're not, and again, he has not sold his business. Like, you know, this. I, so, I mean, I'm sure you've talked about this, but this is the biggest one-time thing you will get to do in your life. Like, like when you don't know how to do it, you might want to get someone who's done it a hundred times to, to help you. But the print core, the other side of that yeah. is, again, I want you to wear your hat. Yeah. yeah. Robert Glazer, person who is, is right now buying businesses. The other side of that equation is, is I would imagine... Well, let me ask you differently. What is your reaction when you learn that a company you're interested in has hired an M&A professional? I just asked our investor this. <laughs> I said, let me ask you our experience this year, because we lost out on a deal that went for a ridiculous amount of money you know, last year. So I said, which do you prefer? Do you prefer going through this one-off you know, one thing and they 
because a lot of times the other thing is people always want to wait six months. They just want to wait till it's 10% better. Even if the market right. is paying premium and is never paid before, there is the sort of Annie syndrome that I've called it of like- Sorry, the Annie syndrome? What is yeah, that? Yeah, tom tomorrow, tomorrow. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I've us, never heard that us, term, but I love Call that. us tomorrow. Um, yeah. Because again, I, and I had this too, if we just do 20% more, but again, you want to tell people, look, if the market just cools down, like someone just said to me, the SaaS market, you know, public market has consolidated, you know, 40% down that hasn't yeah. hit the private market yet. Like that's about to all roll down. And those people that waited are actually going to be worth less money. So it's hard when you're in a, a, a euphoric market, but back to the question, it's tricky. So, you know, in a process, usually that that business is going to sell, you know, if you make an offer, you have a chance and they're going to go through with it. You might pay more than you want, but you are, you're likely to waste less time. Um, right. Then, you know, I think that's the, that is the trade-off. Got it. Got it. And and so you're, you know, what's going to sell. So, you know, they're probably polished. They're ready to go to market. They're probably, you know, relatively. They, they may be probably done a quality of earnings, a sell side quality of earnings, right? You know that the numbers have been scrubbed through because a good banker does not want to get surprised, right? And in, in right. later in the process. Um, so, uh, you know, as I, so I was literally having this talk with him. I mean, we were laughing about it. I was like, I mean, which is which is better because ostensibly you could probably get a better deal, but those, those deals seem much harder to close. Yeah. Yeah. There's no impetus. Yeah. There's no deadline. Right. Yeah. 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 That makes, that makes total sense. So what is it that you look for in, in, in companies to acquire? Like what's, what is your, what's on your yeah. wish list? So, so as a platform, I think there's sort of three things, and and we talked about this last time. We're not we're not one looking just for scale. So, strategic piece that is part of our clear three to four year strategy and picture, um, where we think like it's super complementary. Their clients are going to want to buy from our clients. Our clients are going to want to their clients. Uh, the culture and the team again in services probably people always say this, but. I mean, and I, I'm not to sound old, like I was going to say, if you sell TVs and I sell VCRs, yeah, the team's really important, but we're trying to <laughs> like- just lost 80% of the audience. Right, right. We're trying to put the products together, right? I, I, you know, <laughs> I knew what you meant, Robert. <laughs> yeah, I know. We'll go a little analog for that analogy. So, but in service <laughs> yeah. businesses, I mean, when you're merging people, you're merging egos, like, you know, in, in, in a lot of cases. So you, you, yeah. you've got to have a good cultural fit. You have an honest discussion about where those people, why they want to be in it or not be in it. I mean, we talked about platform versus roll-in before. The difference is when you lead the platform, it's your management team. And when you're staying, I think a lot of the people coming in, they might say out six or 12 months, you know, and ha have that discussion. Like they might want out and they, they're able to do that because they're the smaller business selling into the bigger platform. So I think it's, it's um, yeah, the, the, the strategic fit, um, I think, you know, culture uh, and team, and then sort of like, you know, the operations, the performance, the best practices, like how, how, you know, how does that, how does that stuff all match up with, uh, with what we do? Like, what does the degree of uh, integration look like from a, from a difficulty standpoint? Got it. How do you ascertain in a practical, like, I, I get the cultural fit. Like you go out yeah. with the people, you have a couple of beers and you're like, yeah, Zoom beers. <laughs> I could, I could work with this person. Like I get there is a qualitative subjective element to this, but I think people would also want to know, is there a way to make that more objective, more scientific? Like, do you use personality tests? Do you, is there some 
tool out there that you can recommend that allows a you know a, an acquirer to evaluate a cultural fit yeah we had we we weren't able to do this in our first two deals we knew the company really well one actually didn't have people that came along with it um but because of the timeline and because of COVID, but but one of the things we talked about was really interviewing members of the team, like mm -hmm. pretty pretty deeply uh, as we got to that last um, step. Um, we also we spent a lot of time looking through social media. What do people post? What are the core values? What's the Glassdoor mm -hmm. feedback? Like what you know? What is the market? You can find a lot of back channel stuff. Um, what do we know their customers? What do we think of them? What's the market reputation? Um, I, I you know I. I, people just don't do their due diligence. I, I mean, a lot of, I've got back channel due diligence. I'm, I'm always actually shocked when someone hires, someone we know, like a partner hires one of our exit employees and like no one called us, to, you know, to say, hey, you know, we're talking to this person, like good, bad, like I, I, you, you get a lot of information uh, in, 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 in the marketplace these days. But For sure. uh, I, I think, I think those in-person interviews, um, you know, are, are, and really sitting down and, and talking are really important. Got it. So you're looking for a strategic fit. So you can sell your cross, sell your services to one another, for example, is one, one element of that cultural fit and an operational fit. Like if they're, if, if you're all on Salesforce and they're on some other CRM platform, it's just, it's, it's harder to integrate, right? Like yeah, it's, well, some, some something I took things. from your thing too, which was the, like, I think it was the one to four rule or the one to five rule. Like I, I'm very wary of like 50-50 services things. Like I, I really think when you talk about size to scale, like if you're a hundred person company swallowing a 20 person company versus swallowing an 80, like it's just the degree of difficulty goes up a lot. Yeah. And I think you yeah. said the sweet spot was sort of one to five or one to four. Yeah, the, the five there. to 20 rule. Like, yeah. like most acquirers are, are somewhere between five and 20 times the size of the target acquisition. Yeah. And that's not always the case. Clearly, there's lots of examples that, that fall outside. That's kind of more of a rule of thumb. But, but you're 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 right. If it's you know if it's if, if you're more than twenty times the size of the company you're acquiring, it's kind of like is this this is a waste of time. Like this is going to chew up a lot of our resources. Right. And this, you know, whereas if it's only if it's a company half the size of yours, like if it goes sideways, it could kill both companies. Yeah, I think I think fifty fifty services mergers are are really big risks. Like yeah. not that they can't work, but you know, you're talking full management teams that you're talking a lot of people, particularly if they're built out, you know, if everyone's got a CFO and a head of sale, you're talking, picking a lot of winners and losers, unless they're in totally different segments and you need all those people. So I, I, I just see those degree of difficulties, um, going up. So, you know, I think that's what we sort of map that up, but it, again, it's really, does, does this fit the strategy? I, I think it's so tempting to fall in the scale for scale sake um but but uh or does it cover something we don't do does it cover a different region does it cover a different vertical does it cover a different you know um part of the market or or or, or customer base um I, I remember hearing someone say like you know the ones that were just done for scale are almost always underperform what people think they're going to do one of the things that I, I i'm sure you run into is the entrepreneur who says look robert i, I appreciate you know the conversation but but i want 100 percent cash at closing I'm, I'm not interested in rolling any equity or i don't want any sort of yeah. earn out or any structuring what's your reaction when people say that? sorry you made me forget the third i was like i know there was a third thing i want to say on the last one and that was it which is actually that they are super excited about the vision and the platform and otherwise because that um, we're pretty upfront of four that that is our that is our 
part of our pitch. And I, I, one thing that's, again, that, you know, in that chart, I think that's helpful in that industry is people don't buy services businesses for all cash. They just don't, unless they're huge. They, you know, they're, they're either private equity rollout or they tend to be three to four year earnout because of the, you know, concentration on the people or the customers or otherwise. So that is actually the third pillar. Thank you for <laughs> reminding me about that. So they have to be psyched about what we're building and believe in the upside and really want to be part of that uh, or the team. What if I say, look, Robert, I, I get you're building this thing and I get it, but look, I'm, I'm a lone wolf. I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. I built a great company. I'm happy to sell it to you, but like, don't expect me to work for you or work with you. I'm out. It's hundred percent cash and I'm gone. This is a good company. This is a yeah. company that you could cross sell all day long to your existing customers. It's a cultural fit with the employees, but the entrepreneur is just a hard ass. He's a, he's a maverick. He doesn't want to work for somebody. So, so that's a great question. They're nuanced answers. Well, one, we just wouldn't do the deal for all cash. Uh, it's just not our model. Everyone needs to be in and all the same incentives. He could roll it in or she could roll it in and quit if we said, look, we actually, if, if they are the key person in that business, then no. <laughs> but if they have built a management team and they are sort of not day to day and they say, look, I don't want to go with this. But we say, great, you don't have to go with this, but you need your equity to ride on this because you're going to be a board member and a champion and a, and a whatever. But but again, we have a specific model and, and that's right for some people and not right for others. But sure, if that person I'll roll was 10%. A, <laughs> uh, I, I, again, it's going to come down to nuance. Like again, John, if you've, if you built a management team, are you really not necessary to that business? Maybe we'd look at that and say it's worth it. But if you're key to that business, don't want to be part of a team, want to be out, then that's, that's not, it's not the right deal for us. And, and honestly, it'll be hard to find that deal in marketing services, unless it's a $20 million EBITDA company that has so much scale where the founder's not relevant. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you guys use an equity carry? And for folks who are listening, we're like, what, what is that? Basically yeah. you agree to evaluation with the acquirer uh, and, and you as the entrepreneur say, great, you know, you, you get offered, let's just say 60% of that upfront in cash that you put in your jeans. And then you're asked to roll and right. it's not take cash, but basically take tax free and tax free roll. Yeah. Into, into that. Yeah, so you're not actually paying tax on that. You're rolling yeah. that into a new entity. Then you take that, that let's say you sell for the valuation is $10 million. You get $6 yeah. million up front. Then you take $4 million and you make you trend, you basically convert that into equity in the new yeah. entity. So now you, you've got, you've got um, as shares. You're a minority shareholder yeah. in, 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 a in a bigger business. Yeah. Yeah, in a bigger business. Um, so... So every part of my being says that's a bad deal for the entrepreneur. So let's, I want to unpack why you think that's a good deal, but let me just, well, well, before we go yeah, further, yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> before we go further, why do you use an equity carry instead of an earnout? I mean, I'll flip back to the seller side. Like I don't want to earn out. I mean, most of the disasters I've heard were earnouts because here's the problem with earnouts and why you asked me this last time, why the holding companies are not winning businesses. You talk about a two to three year, four year earnout. First of all, the founder is probably a little bit burnt out. Now they've got to stay around and be there to, to, to do that, even if they're not needed. And then they don't have control. So let's just say, you know, you have Marriott as a client and the new company has Hilton. And then they say to you, and you have this earnout based on this metrics and they go, you know what, you guys have Marriott and we have Hilton. So like, you got to tell Marriott, you can't take the business. Like it's, it, there's this paradox to me where like, 
Long earnouts, I think, are a disaster because I think if you truly want to let a business do its earnout, you need to leave it alone. Well, if you're if you're buying a business and integrating it for synergies, why do you want to leave it alone, right? So that's the if, if, the only way to make a clean out, an earnout clean is to leave that thing alone. We, are you really going to leave a business you bought alone for three years um, if you just said you're buying it for all these synergies? So I I have found most entrepreneurs, and again. Most people in services business do not have an option of an all cash exit. It's just not. It's people. It's you. It's the management team. They are not. They're not buying any assets. So, the sophisticated sellers kind of know that that's probably not an option. So then you can either do the rollout or the or the earnout. I think the rollover is is ten times better. And here's the reason: every person I know had a two, three, or four year earnout, went to hold co or whatever. They begged to get out after year two. They took a haircut on it. They were so miserable. They're whirling at Holco, but their, their job is tied to their earnout. What's really different, and we talked about this last time, the way our investor does it a little different. We, everyone has the same security. Some people have preferences is um, like people say to me, well, what's your handcuff? Can, can you leave? And, and, and they assume I can't leave. I'm like, I can leave tomorrow. They're like, well, how can you do that? I was like, look, if I leave tomorrow, I, I lose my salary. But my equity is my equity. And this is part of the thing too. What's the thing a founder going to do in most cases? They're dying to go start the new firm, right? <laughs> and the, 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 the competitor. So everyone is on the same page. Everyone is moving towards the same outcome. My employment and my livelihood, my happiness is not tied to my equity. They are, they are one and the same. Now there are different provisions and people you have to be careful. Sometimes you're allowed to keep it and let it grow. Sometimes they can, you know, buy it out, you know, when you leave. Um, but to me, that. That's the freedom you want. And, and I think if your partner is flexible, you'd say, look, the person rolls into a platform and after a year and they go, you know what? I'm good. I've done what I need to do here. Like, I'm going to be a champion of this platform. Maybe I'm a board member. Like, I'm rooting for you because I have significant equity in this. So you don't have to worry about them going and starting a competing business, worrying about them bad-mouthing the business. Like, I, I really, yes, versus all cash, maybe some people take all cash. The goal of these deals, frankly, is that people make a lot more on the back end than up front, but obviously that's a, a risk trade-off. But I, I, you know, I am not, I'm not in favor of anything more than a six to twelve month earnout because I think that I think anything after that starts to get really messy. You can leave an integrated business alone for six to twelve months to do what it's doing, but you shouldn't buy a business that you're leaving alone for three years. And that's the only true way to. I mean, there's so many lawsuits over earnouts, like. I, I bet if you did a study on the longer the earnout, the more problems there are. Yeah, yeah. And, and agencies were getting into we're getting into seven year earnouts. In fact, we did Happy Marketer. We did a uh, an interview with someone. I thought it was seven. I, I'd have to go back and re-listen to the transcript. I mean, the chance of that person being there on seven years is probably zero, right? And and, and but they'll hang around and they'll be miserable because that's how they get paid out. Okay, it's just not. But a good in, yeah. in fairness, in yeah. fairness, there, the there are. Yeah. What's that? <laughs> it's a be devil's advocate. I, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I was going to say, in fairness, there are examples of private equity deals that go south. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Sure. And, and we can, and the reason I share this is I, I, I just, I'd love your insight as to how to, how entrepreneurs can evaluate and vet a private equity group 
to avoid yeah. the scenario I'm about to describe. So it was Ryan Moran, uh, can't remember, you can Google it, Built to Sell Radio episode, maybe around 200, but if you just Google Built to Sell Radio, Ryan Moran, you'll, it'll pop up. I may be getting the, the numbers a little bit wrong, but essentially the, the kind of general themes are, are, I think, correct. I think he built his business uh, to around $20 million in revenue, yeah. and he got burned out, tired, and decided to sell. Sold to a private equity group. It was a 60-40 deal to my rec recollection. It may have been 70-30, but it was a majority recapitalization. He kept in 40% rule, but he was burnt out, tired, and, and wasn't prepared to be the CEO, but was prepared to stay on and kind of advise yeah. and, and to your point, remain as a shareholder. So the private equity company brings in, does a search, brings in a new CEO for the business, and the CEO struggles. Uh, the private equity group struggles to pay back the debt. Yeah. The business goes to zero. Ryan loses all of his equity. Oh, so yeah. he, he essentially sold his company for 60% on the dollar, if, if, if you think about yeah. it that way. So again, I'm not suggesting that, that that's, you know, that's the norm, but it does, it is the risk to your point. It does happen. And, and so how can an entrepreneur listening to this avoid do their best due diligence to avoid that sort of situation. Like what can they do? Cause you I'll tell you, I'll tell you the advice I got from everyone, which is yeah. in these 60, 40 deals or 70, 30, 50, make sure that if you never got another dollar, that the initial is enough that you're okay. Not that you wouldn't have some regret. Let's be honest. We're not, <laughs> but it's enough. You're not going to lose sleep. Like that. It meets your, it meets your threshold that if you never got that again, and, and in some cases you couldn't work for a while, you'd be okay. So I, I, I took that advice to heart. And I think that's when a lot of people think about going to market or they do the math. Um, the second is sort of due diligence around the private equity firm. How much leverage do they use? What's their track record? Uh, you know, we didn't talk about this last time, but I called 20 references on our private equity firm. They gave it to me. They told me it was the most anyone had ever called. I, hmm. And I called people, I joked, I said like, I feel like I'm getting married and I'm calling to ask you about my bride, right? And, and I called people who had, I asked for, I want people that, I, I actually said, can you give me people that you've worked with that exited, a deal that you didn't do or that you lost? Because I wanted to see like how, how, how they do in that. You know, one of, of someone who rolled in and then left, like I actually gave a bunch of different scenarios. They gave me all the names. I called all of them. Uh, and, you know, I just got comfortable with how they did business. Um, but I think... Yeah, how they do business, how much leverage they're going to use. I don't know whether that firm used five times, you know, leverage or they use one time, you know, leverage. That I also probably yeah. matters a lot. But I, I that the first principle is the sixty or the seventy or whatever it is. Like that's got to be the cake, <laughs> and the rest is is the icing. Yeah, and 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 what? How how much? or how little equity role would, would you be prepared to do? And I think I know the answer depends on the scenario and so forth, but yeah. you give people a ballpark. Is it reasonable to ask for 80% and, and roll 20? Is that a, you know, if it's a PE deal, is that a reasonable ask? Is that, is that beyond? Yeah, I, I, my guess is most PE or platforms, 20 is going to be the minimum of, of feeling like they have some skin in the game. And then it's going to be a trade-off. Like again, you might get the higher valuation you want, but it goes up to 40, right? Um, these are all deal lever points where you can get the enterprise value, but then, hey, if you're going to pay that, if you really think that's the value, then you should be willing to, you know, to, to, to roll in and take the risk on that value. So I think these are all, these are lever points. And, and this is stuff that entrepreneurs can negotiate. 
too. Um, I think, you know, we were in the middle of a negotiation where someone, you know, got the number that they wanted, but then they wanted some of these extra variables. And we're like, well, look, if you want these extra variables, then <laughs> that number is going to change. So um, I, th I think those are key leverage points. You know, I, the, the general range is 20 to 40. I think 40 gets to be on where the price is really high or the business is riskier or they're, you know, it's, it's newer um, and, and, and you're compensating for a higher price with a higher role. Got it. That's super helpful for sure. I, um, I feel like I could talk to you for hours. We already have spoken for hours <laughs> between part one and part two in this episode, but I, I'm going to leave it there. Maybe we'll do another uh, session if, uh, if people like okay, can, I, can I just throw in one other thing? Because I think this is, we didn't talk about it. These, yeah. when, you, when people hear rumors, when they, and this is the problem, I think, that drives false expectations. Oh, my friend sold his marketing service business for $10 million. The, the how makes a big difference, right? That's the problem because someone hears that. Oh, we got 5 million up front and then he got a million over a year for five years of the Bobby Bonilla deal where I think the Mets are still paying him, right? Like 20 years later, right. uh, where he got, yeah. you know, so, yeah. or you're, like it, it, I, I think when you, when you're thinking about selling your business and you've heard these numbers, the number doesn't reflect the, the true story of the deal, the equity rollover, the 10 year earnout, you know, all of these things. That really, I'd encourage you to dig into those things because it. I think that's where people build a false sense of thing. Because I've heard people say, "Oh, well, so and so went for ten million. You're like, sixty percent of that deal was in a six-year earnout. So that was really a four million dollar upfront. The chances of either party paying that out over six years is 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 pretty low. To your point, like so, that's how an earnout can go sideways. So I I. People like to share their headline number, like they, or, or if you hear that something went under LOI, you know, or an offer, like 80% of those don't close, I, I think. So I, I, this is, I think is really important from setting expectation is when you hear a number, make sure you understand that that closed, what was cash, what was up front. I think this is where people get a lot of their bad market information from i'm so, i'm so glad you <laughs> shared that it's 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 actually one of the the hidden reasons we do built to sell radio is because we want to unpack that so some will yeah. say yeah i sold for 10 times whatever and i'll say okay great so what proportion of that <laughs> how'd you get cash? that money yeah <laughs> now, what, what proportion was the equity rule and then what proportion was earnout and to your point oftentimes you know it's the majority of cash and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing uh but it is, it's the nuances. And, and, and I think that's really, really important for folks to understand is, uh, is when, where is the cash moving? When is the cash moving? And, and what's some, it's it, the devil's in the details. Right. The other piece that you referenced earlier, in fact, the very beginning of our conversation today, and, and a former advisor of mine for years and years ago used to say, great. So they got six times earnings for their business. Was that six times what? Yeah, <laughs> trailing twelve months, six times weighted three-year average, six times six times EBITDA. three-month run rate, right? Yeah, yeah. six-month <laughs> run rate, six month next year's profit. Like, what? Yeah. What is the six? Like, what is it a multiple of? Right. And of course, the most important thing is going to be an adjusted, normalized, trailing twelve months, and that's a that is a that is a that is an, a subjective exercise that can be negotiated. <laughs> well, and it, it's negotiated short. around the margins, but I would say to you, the number, the two things I would recommend if you're thinking about selling your business is, is, is one, understand the market and the deals. And like we're talking about, like have a really good understanding of what they're going for and what the structures are and what market range 
is. And then two, whether it's a CFO or a banker or otherwise, have someone take your books and show you what properly, it's still going to be negotiated, but a properly adjusted EBITDA. You don't want to go to the market, as I have seen many times where people think they had a million dollars in EBITDA, and in five minutes of cursory look, it's 500K. Like, because then you're off by a function of 50%, you know, sure, when you start app, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. applying that, like, it's really important for you to know that and know how they look like those are the two biggest pieces of advice. Sorry, I cut off your story. No, no, yeah. no. I think, yeah, great. If folks want to listen to uh, the, uh, how the adjusted EBITDA can affect valuation, I'd encourage them to go back and listen to Ari Ackerman's Built Soul Radio episode. Just type in Ari Ackerman Built Soul Radio and you'll find it. And it's a great example of how adjustments can can be can be uh, can manipulate your overall price that you get for your company. If, if you're going to sell your company in the next month, you put all of your management team at market level compensation, including yourself. Figure out that if your role is two hundred thousand, then that's the two hundred thousand on your books, and then everything else you're making is profit. It just makes your life much cleaner. Because here's the other thing that happens, by the way, in every deal. I'm sorry to keep going on this. You're, you're at 100 and you're carrying on the books and you sell at a certain thing of EBITDA. And then you say, well, I want to move my salary to 200,000. And, and they go, you can't do that. You can either, you can either have the 6X on the $100,000. Like you can't, you, yeah. it's one or the other. You can't, you, you can't suddenly, you know, add $100,000. And let's say it was a 10X multiple. That was just a million dollar difference. So you're, you're stuck. The salary you have on your books is actually the most investors will hold you to that as the salary that you're going to carry going forward. Yeah. 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 Well said indeed, man, we could go for hours. We should do this again sometime <laughs> part, soon. Part three. Uh, tell people where they can find Robert Glazer if they want to reach out. Uh, yeah. If you're looking for that chart um, or you're interested in it, I think John will put it in the notes. Yeah. I'll put it up. Rob Robertglazer.com uh, and it's under the article section. That's awesome. And it's the company is Acceleration Partners. Yeah, Acceleration Partners, accelerationpartners.com. If you are in partner marketing, affiliate marketing, influencer marketing, we'd love to look to sell your business. We'd, we'd love to talk to you. Just bring adjusted trailing 12 months with you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thanks so much for doing this. Thanks, John. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Robert Glazier. It's the first time we've ever actually talked to an acquirer on Built to Sell Radio, and I'd really love to know what you think of that format. We may do more of this if you like it. Let me know on Twitter. I'm at John Warlow, and you can let us know what you think and what you'd like to hear more of or less of. Again, if you want to figure out how to spell that, builttosell.com, and you can spell Warlow. <laughs> Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next week. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia.